Would you grab your Bible, turn to Jude, let's read our text, and then you can have a seat. It's good to be back. Good last Sunday night at about this time, um, I was with about 250 other believers in a dark place, hearing them sing in Arabic the name of Jesus, and it was just amazing uh, to be there and to hear it. Jude, verse 11. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by the winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted. Wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. That's some encouraging words. <laughs> Woo! Did everybody feel uplifted? Okay. All right. Uh, this is important for this reason. This is going to equip us as God's people to know about the falsehood. And so this is uplifting for us. Because we can see the darkness and the shame that is connected when people proclaim things that are not true. If you will look with me again in verse 3 of Jude, I want to read this verse. This is the theme verse of why Jude wrote this. So he writes, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary. In other words, he found something more important to write. I found it necessary to write, appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. So the reason Jude wrote this was to equip the church in his generation, and then subsequently in the future generations, that the church would be equipped to know when people like me, or similar to me, stand up and say things, and it hits the ear and you go, that doesn't sound right. Because of what I've studied and what I've known, how I've been taught the doctrine that is true connected to Scripture, that we would be equipped to be able to know that. And you cannot contend for something and fight for something that you don't have any idea about, right? You've got to know the truth. You've got to know what real doctrine is and what the Bible actually teaches to be able to hear it and to be able to fight for it. And so this is the theme. And so each thing after this verse was to prepare God's people for how they were to stand in the truth and fight for it. So as a church, any local church, and I just want to talk about LifePoint, it is important for us to have something, I'm going to share a big Bible word, y'all ready? To have the right ecclesiology. What ecclesiology is, it is, it is the study of the church to know how the church is to function. What are, the, what are the principles about the church? How does God want the church to function? Who are the leaders in the church? What is to be the emphasis in the church? And so ecclesiology is the study of the church. And so it's important for us as a people of God at LifePoint that we know why the church exists. What is God's purpose for us, not individually, but corporately together when we come together, that we are to fight for, contend for, and make a priority in our lives. So we as a church must have the right ecclesiology, the right understanding of the church. Secondly, we must know 
the right doctrine that the Scripture teaches. And when those two things are in line, I believe a church is headed in the right direction, is on the right path, and is prepared for anything that might be taught, said, raised up in a life group or in a student ministry or in a relationship with someone where, you, where it doesn't sound correct. And so it's important for us to make sure that our ecclesiology is right and our doctrine is right. All of this is key for you and I to know why we exist, what God's purpose for us is to follow Him and to know the truth. And the reason this is important is we live in a war zone that is all about battling for the truth. Correct? We just look around and we see this. So if we're going to contend for what's right, we're going to keep out of the church what doesn't need to get into the church. It is important for us to know why the church exists, what does the Bible actually teach that we are to follow and stand upon. We are living in very crucial days at least in the American culture in regard to church. So that's why we must be aware of the lies that are taught, things that can creep in, and we must be allegiant to Christ. So there's some key verbs today that we're going to look at as we begin to walk through the text here in a moment. And he's going to use three examples. He's going to talk about Cain. He's going to talk about a guy named Balaam. And then he's going to talk about um, a guy named Korah and some of the guys that were around with him. But three key words. With Cain, he's going to talk about that Cain, he's going to warn us, don't walk in the way of Cain. Key word there, walk. Don't walk in this manner. The second one connected to Balaam is do not abandon your life for the sake of earthly treasure using spiritual means to get that. This is what Balaam did. He was a prophet for hire who who would do whatever he needed to do to be hired out to place a curse upon People. Thirdly, he says he's going to say, and do not go the way of Korah who perished, who, who were the ground opened up and swallowed a group of people because of their rebellion against Moses. So he starts off again with this word woe, and it, woe is a very strong word, and we'll look at that here in just a moment. So I'm incredibly grateful to Jude for this little short letter that comes to us in the New Testament. And I believe that we owe him an incredible debt of gratitude. His love for the church and his generation, willing to fight and contend and willing to write this for us, has benefited the church throughout history, through sometimes in very dark times when the gospel was not treasured and God's word was was downplayed. And so because this letter is inspired by the Holy Spirit, It is meant to stand for all time, and we are to pay careful, close attention to what is there. Now, I want to give you some reminders as to why we affirm the eternal nature of God's Word. So that these verses, though they are heavy and initially looking at them, these woes and these warnings that are there, why these things even are to be treasured by us, because they are sacred Scripture. So Jesus Himself said this in Matthew 24, 35, he said, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Shakespeare will be gone. Dean Kuntz, the writer. Clive Cussler, the writer. Any writer that you want to think of, history, new, whatever the case may be, every writing of man 
will not last, but God's word will last. Isaiah 40, verse 8, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Psalm 138, 2, I bow down toward your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your steadfast love and your faithfulness. And then the writer writes, here's what God has exalted above everything. For you have exalted above all things your name, God. That's what you exalt. And then he says, and your word. Psalm 119.89, your word, O Lord, is eternal. It stands firm in the heavens. And then Peter, in his first letter, chapter 1, verse 24, he says, For all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And are you not thankful that we have something that's come to us that doesn't have error, that it stands the test of time? Last week we stood literally in the Middle East in places that the Bible speaks about. We stood where Daniel stood. We walked where Jonah was. And here we are thousands of years later, some of those things going back 4,000 years. And they are real places. These are real truths. These are real stories that have come to us so that we can know what the truth is. God's word is eternal. Now our culture and many people in the profession of ministry have gotten to a place now where there's a downplaying of the eternal nature of God's word. We cannot be those kind of people that embrace that. God's word stands for all time. And so we will see today that in the reality of what Jude is writing here, and because Jude is writing sacred scripture, that this letter, even in its counsel that seems to be maybe a little bit different and, and, and a little bit more serious, is to be treasured and counted as so worth so much, just as much as the Gospel of John or any favorite book that you have of the New Testament. These words are eternal. They are for our good and for our counsel. And therefore, every word that that Jude writes here, every counsel that he gives here, every reference, we are to give special attention and careful attention to and great affection to what has come to you and I in the text. And so we're going to get some pretty clear, vivid pictures today from Jude. So let's begin to walk through the text. And the first thing I want us to see this morning is what is written in verse 11. And this is where we'll spend the majority of our time here um, in these three examples. So look with me again in verse 11. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's Rebellion. So now here's what's happening. In Jude, if you've been following along, and you've been following along, right? You've been listening well, right? That was not a very good that was not a very good response. You've been following along, right? Okay. So he has been giving sets of three, beginning in verse five. Three examples, a Jewish example, an angel example that they were apostatized themselves. And then a Gentile example with Sodom and Gomorrah. And then he gave three more examples that we looked at a couple of weeks ago that describe the nature of those 
who apostatized themselves. And now he's going to give a set of three more examples, living examples, so that you and I can see exactly what he's been talking about, so that we will not miss what he has been setting forth for us. And so of these three examples, each of them are identified with the rebellious, not with the godly. These are three examples of what not to do. Instead of, instead of them living in a way to identify themselves with God's righteousness, they live with a spirit of rebellion. And so Jude is going to put this out for us so that we can see it. So he just says, woe to them. Going all the way back to 5, 6, and 7, and then 8 through 10 that we looked at a few weeks ago. And he's emphasizing this. This word woe means something dreadful's coming. Something eerie is coming. This is a word of warning for the church to be aware of what's happening. That this woe means something inevitable is coming upon those who teach and affirm things that are not true and that are lies. This is a big deal to God in Scripture. That truth is taught accurately and embraced the way it is. Listen to what Paul writes in Romans chapter 2. Verses 6 through 8. He says, God will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, God will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. And so this is what Jude is saying. Those who are embracing and abandoning themselves from the truth to made-up stories, dreams. Remember we talked about this a couple weeks ago. Making up dreams, subjective experience, becoming the guide for truth and all of this. And so he says there, they are just self-seeking kind of people. And they're not obeying the truth. They actually obey unrighteousness. And for those who do this, there will be wrath and fury. Now, there is a continuity that is important for us to remember between the Old Testament and the New Testament. These are not different stories. The New Testament is a continuation of the story that began in the Old Testament about the coming of Christ, that there would be one who would come and be the sacrifice for us, our substitute, to pay for our sin and to provide the way of salvation. And I know I've said this, so please forgive me if this bothers you, but I just want to remind us that this is consistently talked about today by some pastors, that the Old Testament is irrelevant. And I want to emphasize here that we have a New Testament writer writing under the inspiration of the Spirit, and he's using Old Testament examples in a New Testament context. So we are not to downplay the Old Testament. These stories are truth. They are critical for us. They are important for us. And so now let's walk through these. And I want to emphasize to us the importance of what he is talking about here. So the first point this morning is is that these people are living lives identified with the rebellious. Now he just gives really brief descriptions. Why does he just give brief descriptions? Because his audience would have known what? These stories. They would have known the story of Cain. They would have known the story of Balaam. And they would have known the story of the sons of Korah. 
So this is written to a context of people that when the letter came, they would exactly know this and they would know the principles well. But he's using this in this New Testament context. So Cain withheld his best from the Lord in favor of his own greed and self-centeredness. Cain was not going to submit to God's authority or what God had instructed them to do. For he is like so many throughout the ages. He felt that disobedience to God was the better option. He is the first person outside of the garden to continue in the way of rebellion. He was just going to do his own thing. It seems, I believe, pretty clear in the text that God had told both Cain and Abel how they were to approach him with their sacrifice. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment. So how they were to respond was to respond in faith by listening to what God told them that they, they needed to do. Both of them were to do the same thing. One of them chose to go another way, create a new path. One chose to obey God and submit to the path that God had set forth for him. And faith is always about obedience. It is always about obedience for us in our lives. John, writing later in his, in his, his letter called, that we call 1 John, wrote this in chapter 3, verse 12. He gives warning, just as Jude does here. He says, We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's were righteous. John tells us here that Cain was not a believer because he was connected and related to Satan. That's what he says in 1 John Chapter 3 here. He was a bit religious. He knew he was to bring a sacrifice. So he does something religious, but he was not going to submit to God's way at all. So John writes, Jude writes, the indication here, the fruit of, of Cain's life was unrighteousness and it was evil. Ultimately, here's the reality. Cain did not like God's way of salvation. He did not like what God was asking him to. So he chose to create his own course. So I want to give some more insight to this because I think it's important for us this morning to consider these things about Cain. So this will bring some practical implication to our context in 2023. Let me remind you of some things that were true about Cain. Cain is the first person who was ever born. Adam was fashioned out of the dirt by God. Um, God put Adam asleep, took a rib out, fashioned Eve. And so uh, we learn in Genesis 4 that Cain is the first one who was born and began to grow up. He is the first with parents who literally walked with God. Not just walked with God like you and I walk with God, literally walked with with God, and these parents could tell Cain some astounding stories of what it was like when God came near and they would spend time with him. He had parents who could have told him as he was growing up about the deception of Satan and the danger of temptation, as well as the necessity to trust what his parents were instructing him about regarding the destruction of sin and how costly sin can be in your lives. He should have had heightened senses of why it was important to walk with God 
and the necessity of truth for his lies, his life, and to reject the lies that would come along to his life. Cain is the first older brother who would have had the very first friendship of someone in his blood with his younger brother, Abel, who shared the same blood. Cain worked the land. Abel, Genesis says, worked with sheep. So with his unique perspective of all these things that were connected to Cain's life, you would have think that he would have lived with a state of heightened wonder and amazement about who God is and how to walk with God in intimacy. He should have lived with great thankfulness to God. But this is the opposite of what his life was actually like. He rejected God's words. As a matter of fact, with all three of these examples we will see this morning, they rejected God's word. It is clear to me in the text that God gave both Cain and Abel the same instructions into how they were to bring their sacrifices before him. For this is why one of them was accepted and one of them was rejected. I don't think it's a complicated issue to, to understand what they were supposed to do. They were both supposed to do the same thing. Now, Cain was a fruit and veggie guy, okay? This is what he did. He worked the ground. He grew plants, fruits, and vegetables. His brother Abel was a keeper of the sheep. But it's clear from the text, because Abel's sacrifice was accepted by God, what sacrifice, this is a response question, what sacrifice did he bring? He brought an animal, right? A blood sacrifice. Cain didn't bring a blood sacrifice. They were both told what to do. He could have got a lamb from his brother to bring that. Instead, watch this, he becomes the first person who says, no, I'm going to create a new way that will be outside of God's way. I will determine how my worship is going to look to God. I know God has told me that I'm to bring, as my brother has done, um, a blood sacrifice. I've gotten the same instructions, but I'm going to kind of bring my own sacrifice and my own offering to the Lord. And as he does this, he knew he, he now becomes the very first person who decides on his own how he would approach God. So he intentionally brings a sacrifice before God, listen to this, that he already knows how God is going to respond. How's God going to respond? He's not going to accept it. And yet he's decided he's going to go ahead and bring it anyway. And so he intentionally brings a sacrifice before God that he already knows God is not going to accept He was supposed to, as his brother, bring exactly what he needed, and God would have accepted the sacrifice that he brought. So here's Cain's path, and this is the warning from Jude for us. Cain's path is a rejection of God's way for his own personal way that he was going to establish for himself. This is how cults come about. This is how you have Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormonism and all these other things. It is a rejection of the truth of the revelation of Scripture, what God has said and for other people now to just go their own path and to create a new path. So Cain, on his own, decides what is going to be the way and God is just going to have to now accept it. He knows the way that God has established and he chooses to disobey. So Genesis chapter 4 verse 3 through 5 says this, in the course of time Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought the firstborn of his flock and other fat portions, 
And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So as Cain takes this step, sin begins to rule inside of his heart. Now think through this with me concerning Cain. He knows the time for sacrifice has come. He knows what God has told them that they need to do. So he knows what to do. But well before he even comes to God, he decides that he's going to create a new path all on his own. And he has no regard for what God has said and how God has instructed him. Again, I go back to he already knows how God is going to likely respond to this. Or he may say, as you hear in our generation, Oh, God is so loving. He'll just forgive me and everything will be all right in the end. So he decides, watch, that irreverence in approaching God will be his pathway for sacrificing. He will worship as he sees fit, not as God has established for him. And as he does this, he shows that he didn't give any concern and didn't care at all for what God had taught him, nor what God would think of the act. So he decides to offer something not connected to the truth, not connected to God's instructions, not connected to God's word. And then listen to this. And then he's mad about it. So God, I'm going to come to you. You've told me what to do, and I'm going to come to you, but I'm going to come to you with my own path. And God says, well, no, I'm not accepting your path. I've told you that my path is the path, and it will bless you if you will do this. And so, so God says, I'm not accepting this. And then he's angry about it because God doesn't adjust to Cain's new view about what he needs to do in his life. So this is what the scripture says. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. And the Lord said to him, listen to how God's patience with us is amazing, is it not? We, we, we try God over and over with our intellect and that we're smarter than Him, that we've got better ways, we've got better insight when the Scripture is clear about things. So Cain was very angry and his face fell and the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, Cain? And why is your, why is your face fallen? Why are you sad about this? And He just affirms the truth God does. If you do well, if you do what I tell you to do, and you didn't do that, Cain, isn't it going to go well with you? That's what God says to him. If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, you need to know this. This is always the case. Sin will always be crouching at the door if you choose a pathway of unrighteousness. And he says, God says to him, the desire of sin for your life is crouching, ready to, to spring and, and grab you. And here's, here's the deal. As it crouches and as it's ready to, to latch onto you, its, its desire for you is contrary. Sin will never be for your good. Oh, it'll, it'll, it'll tell you it's going to feel good. It's going to be great to, to live outside of God's purposes. And then he tells him, but Cain, you've got to rule over the temptation to go your own path and to step away. Because if you'll follow me and you will obey me, 
I bless that. And it will go well with you in your life. So I said this a while ago. Cain, in a sense, is religious. He brings a sacrifice. But as he brings the sacrifice, he doesn't give any kind of consideration to the following of the teaching of the Lord as he brings it. So what's Cain doing here before we move on to Balaam? He is redefining the terms of worship. This kind of mindset is everywhere in our day. It's becoming more and more the norm to redefine what God and what God's people should do. And there's been a redefinition of many, many things today that we are told should be acceptable now. And I could list on and on and on and on, right, of things that we are being told as God's people that should be acceptable now. And so I'll just give a few. There's a redefinition of what the family is from what was biblical. Um, that's been greatly redefined um, now. We are told, and it's not even possible to do this, you cannot change your gender. Every cell in our body screams that you're a boy or a girl, and that cannot, cannot be changed, period. And yet we are told to just ignore science and ignore the reality and just get in line as God's people that this is the new truth. We are being told now and again that the Bible is really not the truth, that there are other means of truth, other places that we can read to find truth and to follow that kind of truth. And so Cain is redefining what worship should look like. He's redefining a new path. And as he does this, don't get in his way. Look at our culture. Do not get in the way of the agendas of our culture, Christ follower. You just fall in line with what we are establishing that you ought to embrace today. This was the way with Cain. So angry and upset with God that he didn't do the right thing and mad at God when God said, if you'll do this, it'll go well with you. You didn't do this. So you're mad and angry about it. So mad and angry about it that he, that he looks at his brother Abel and sees his brother Abel in the way and murders his brother. And then God comes and says, where's your brother? I'm not my brother's keeper. Yeah, hey, by the way, he was his brother's keeper. Family takes care of family. And yet he just mocks God and he has an attitude and he's still angry with God because of what happened and took place. Cain started redefining what God considered to be acceptable. And the mindset of Cain is this, I get to decide my own truth regarding the worship of God. Don't you tell me what to do. So now we're going to go to another one, the next one. So he says, he says you beware of this attitude of redefining things of deciding to go your own way and worship God however you want to worship Him. And now he goes to another Old Testament example in the book of Numbers. So I'm going to ask you to turn to Numbers chapter 25 for a moment. We're going to read a little bit about this. So we are not to abandon ourselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error. 
So Balaam's story is found in Numbers 22 through 25, and also he's mentioned again in chapter 31. And Balaam embraced the pathway of abandoning his life to sin and to get other people to sin for his own selfish gain to benefit himself. So with Cain, it's just an individual instance. With Balaam now, he's going to influence others, a larger group of people, to rebel against God and to do their own thing. So Jude, again, is warning us to not do this. Woe to those who do this. So Balaam ultimately was a prophet for hire. To advance himself, he would be hired out to kings and other people to speak curses. So he was a prophet for hire to advance himself. He was not a prophet for God and to honor God as he used his position to get money for himself. This word abandon themselves is a Greek word that means to pour yourself out in excessive abundance. And this is what This is what Balaam did. He would get hired out for money. He would pour himself out in excess against another people, against something else. And this is what he was going to do against Israel. So the king of Moab, his name was Balak, and he came to Balaam and said, Hey, I'm going to hire you and give you money so that you would curse Israel because I I know what's happened with them and I don't want that to happen to me and to my people. And so he goes to Balaam and he hires him out. And Balaam... Um, begins to process of doing this. And he pours himself out in this way. And so Jude is saying this, that Balaam abandoned himself for the sake of gain for himself financially and what was best for him. This word, sake of gain in the Greek, means to pay for the labor that had been performed. And so he's hired, he's been paid, and so he attempts multiple times. Y'all remember the story? To curse Israel. Did it ever work? Didn't work once. So watch what happened. He realizes, Balak, I know you've hired me to put a curse on Israel to save the Moabite people, and it's not going to work, but I'll tell you what you can do. If you will get some of your women to begin inviting some of the men this is, again, I want, to, I want to remind you of the story before we read Numbers 25 in a moment. They have wandered the desert for how many years? Forty. They are on the edge of entering the promised land. They're camping at this place called Shidom. This is a problem for men in men's hearts. When men have too much time on their hands and they're idle, men figure out ways to get in trouble. Not that women don't do that, but men are pretty good at it. We are, men are to work, they are to, to take care of things and, and give of themselves and to work hard and to come home tired at the end of the day. So they're camped at this place near the Moabite city. Some of the women in town, under the instruction of Balaam to Balak, I tell you what, if you can get some of the men in the camp of Israel to come into the city feed them, because men like to eat, and they'll sit with you. And what happens is they begin to worship, they begin to hang out with these women. They begin to worship their idols of the Moabites. And then they begin to have sex with the women in the city. And Balaam's counsel was this, since I don't have the power to curse God's people, 
I tell you what, I, I, I can tell you how you'll get God to deal with his people. Get them caught up in sin, and God, because he's holy, he'll have to deal with his people. So look with me in Numbers chapter 25. So while Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, take all the chiefs of the people. Again, I want, you, I want to notice this. Just look up here for a second. Ask yourself this question as we read Numbers chapter 25. If God takes idol worship serious. Verse 4. And the Lord said to Moses, take all the chiefs of the people and hang them in the sun before the Lord. That the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. And Moses said to the judges of Israel, Each of you kill those of his men who have yoked themselves to the bell of Peor. Now look up here just for a second before we read on. They have been wandering for 40 years in the desert. God has been fulfilling what he said 40 years before, that every person above a certain age would die out, and once they die out, you will get to the place and those that are younger who now will be older now will enter into the promised land. He had been with them, providing for them for 40 years. Now they camp at the end of the 40 years, and this is their life of thanks to God by committing gross immorality and idolatry. Don't say to me that the human heart is not wicked even among believers. It is why our heart daily must be submitted to the glory and the power of God because we cannot keep ourselves, but He can. All right, back to the text. Verse 6. And behold, one of the people of Israel came and brought a Midianite woman to his family in the sight of Moses, in the sight of the whole congregation of the people of Israel, while they were weeping in the entrance of the tent of meeting. So let me give you the picture here. There's a remnant of God's people who haven't been going into the city. They're not worshiping the bell of Peor. They're not committing immorality. A plague is breaking out in the camp because of all of this. And a man in the city has brought the woman in the city that he's been having sex with. He brings them to his family, into his family's tent. You've got the remnant of God's people. You remember the tent of meeting? God would come down, right, at the tent of meeting. Moses would go inside the tent of meeting and he would converse with God. God would meet with them. And Exodus 32, 33 reveals this to us that when God would come down and Moses would spend time with God, everybody stood at the entrance of their own tent. But chaos is broken out in the camp. This plague is killing people. This man has gone into the city and the woman that he's been sleeping with, he has brought into the camp the core group of God lovers in the camp 
or at the tent of meeting where God would come down and meet with Moses and they are pleading with God. And he just brings himself or the woman right by all of this godly action of God's people pouring out their heart. Well, there's a guy named Phineas. If you didn't know, I like Phineas. And Phineas is like, no, 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 no. We're not doing this. We're not going to do this. And so verse 7 says that when Phineas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, saw it, he rose and left the congregation and he took a spear in his hand. And he went after the man of Israel into the chamber and pierced both of them, the man of Israel and the woman through her belly. Thus the plague on the people of Israel was stopped. Nevertheless, those who died by the plague was 24,000. So Balaam's great error was that he desired to teach and speak things against what was the truth to get other people to become idol worshipers and to commit immorality. Do you remember what Jesus said in John 2 when he cleaned out the temple and they were selling all the stuff inside? He told those who sold the pigeons, take these away and don't you make my father's house a house of trade. Don't you make ministry about financial gain and fame and the applause of others and money. Balaam denied what he knew to be true and he sought to curse the people of God according to the desires of King Balak and he couldn't do that. So then he conspired to get God's people to buy into sin and idolatry. So we've already seen that Cain just went his own way. Now we see that there are teachers who work on teaching and seducing others by using religion to get them to walk away from what God has said in the truth. So he says, Jude says, don't walk in the way of Cain, creating your own path. As you create your own path and you're against God's people, you better be really careful to not seduce others. And then the last one, turn back to Numbers chapter 16. And here's the third one. So this incident, third example. And don't be like those who perished in Korah's rebellion. So this incident brings us back to number 16. And we'll read a few verses here in just a moment. But here's the summary so far. All three of these examples that Jude uses... In just one verse, have one common foundational thing connected with them. Please don't hear this. Don't mishear this. Or please hear. Let me say that better. Please hear this. Please hear this. Please hear this. All three have one foundational thing in common. All three knew the truth of God's word. And rejected it. That's the common foundational thing with it. Cain rejects God's word and worship by disobeying and then getting angry. Balaam rejects God's word about idolatry and immorality by sharing with Balak what could trip up Israel. 
Korah rejects God's word by rebelling against the leaders God had set up and the way God had established for the priesthood. Every aspect of what Korah did and all three and the others, the other two as well, was a rejection of God's word. For this is what false teaching ultimately always is. It is a rejection of the true doctrine and the true teaching of the scripture. And so Jude writes here, don't be like those who perished in Korah's rebellion. Let me tell you what the word rebellion. If you're taking notes, you ought to write this one down. Because this, this is the point of it all that Jude's writing here. The Greek word for rebellion here in the Greek is anti-logia. What's logos? The word. What is anti that we get anti against? Korah's rebellion was against the word of God. So this, what he did to rebel against Moses and to fight against Moses, and he got 250 others to gather with him, then ultimately almost another 20-something, 25,000 people died. And this one previously, before Numbers chapter 25, you got people dying all over, not learning the lessons of just months before of what happened in the midst of them. So Korah rebels against Moses and against God's word. Let me give you some insight about Korah. Korah is a Levite. He's a cousin of Moses. The Levites were to take care of the temple. But for some reason, there's something, we don't know exactly know why. Maybe God um, already knew something about the character of Korah. He was not allowed in the priesthood. He's a Levite, but he's not allowed in the priesthood. And it seems that he's probably unhappy about this. And he's taking it out on Moses. So he wants a leadership in the nation. He's not given this leadership in the nation. And I tell you, church, hear me. The spirit of Korah has ruined many a church throughout history. Where another person inside the church wants a more prominent role. And they will openly rebel against the pastor or some other leader to get them removed so that that person can have a position that's there. And when that happens, it's over with. Listen, if that ever happened here, it would be over with. You don't recover from that. Now, you can keep going, but you don't recover. It's, it's just absolutely, absolutely destructive. I've been there. I'm going to give you just a brief illustration. So I started a church way back in 19... 90s students did you know that people were alive in the 1990s and I was one of those and so I was a I was a minister and some of the leadership of the church that I was the pastor of had a secret meeting one night to install some new principles and plans for my life without me being a part of that and the result of that was our church split in two one church stayed here and then the group that was with me, we had, to, we had to leave and we had to go somewhere else. That's called the spirit of Korah. Now, not every leader does everything right, correct? They don't. Moses was not perfect. He didn't get to go in the promised land. Y'all remember that? But was Moses God's man? Yes. And so Korah decides to, I'm going to get 250 other leaders in the congregation 
And they come to Moses. So look with me, number 16. Verse 2. And they rose up before Moses with a number of the people of Israel, 250 chiefs of the congregation, chosen from the assembly, well-known men. And they assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron and said to them, You have gone too far. For all in the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. So why do you, Moses, exalt yourself above the assembly of the Lord? So in case you didn't get what the point is, let me share what the point is. So Korah gets 250 guys. He's tired of listening to Moses. Tired of you teaching us. I'm tired of you being the one who goes to the tent of meeting. I'm tired of this. I'm tired of this. I'm done with this. And so he, he gathers 250 others and convinces them, leading men in the congregation, we got to do something about Moses. And they're all in agreement about that. And they come to Moses and they just say this, Hey, Moses, everybody in the congregation, look, I've got 250 representatives here. We're all holy. We can lead this, not just you, We are all holy. You're not special. And so why do you keep exalting yourself and telling us what to do? And so they rebel against Moses. And the text just continues to go on and it begins to share. Look in verse 4. It says, And when Moses heard it, he fell on his face, and he said to Korah and all of his company, In the morning the Lord will show who is his and who is holy, and will bring him near to him. And the one whom he chooses, he will bring near to him. So do this, Korah. Take censers, Korah and all his company, and put fire in them, and put incense on them before the Lord tomorrow. And the man whom the Lord chooses, me or you guys, shall be the Holy One. You have gone too far, sons of Levi. This is Moses speaking. And Moses said to Korah, Hear now, you sons of Levi. Is it too small a thing for you that the God of Israel has separated you from the congregation of Israel to bring you near to himself to do service in the tabernacle of the Lord and to stand before the congregation to minister to them? And that he has brought you near him and all your brothers, the sons of Levi, with you. And would you seek the priesthood also? Therefore, it is against the Lord that you and all your company have gathered together. What is Aaron that you grumble against him? And Moses sent to call Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and they said, We will not come up. Is it a small thing that you have brought us up out of the land flowing with milk and honey to kill us in the wilderness that you also must make for yourself, make yourself a prince over us? Moreover, you have not brought us into a land. You haven't even brought us into the land of milk and honey, nor given us inheritance of fields and vineyards. Will you put out the eyes of these men? We will not come up, Moses. And Moses was very angry and said to the Lord, Do not respect their offering. I have not taken one donkey from them, and I have not harmed one of them. And Moses said to Korah, Be present, you and all your company, before tomorrow. You and they and Aaron tomorrow. And let every one of you take his censer and put incense on it. And every one of you bring 
before the Lord his censer, 250 censers, you also, and Aaron, each a censer. So every man took a censer, put fire in them, and laid incense on them, and stood at the entrance of the tent of meeting with Moses and Aaron. And then Korah assembled all the congregation against them at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And the glory of the Lord appeared to all the congregation. And the Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron, saying, By the way, that should have been an, uh, an example to Korah that he's not God's man. That God's speaking to who still? Moses. 21. Separate yourselves from among this congregation that I may consume them in a moment. And they fell on their faces and said, O God, the God of the spirits of all flesh, shall one man sin, and will you be angry with all the congregation? And the Lord said to Moses, saying, Say to the congregation, Get away from the dwelling of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. Go to verse 28 now. And Moses said, Hereby you shall know that the Lord has sent me to do all these works, and that it has not been of my own accord. If these men die as all men die, or if they are visited by the fate of all mankind, then the Lord has not sent me. But if the Lord creates something new, and the ground opens its mouth and swallows them up with all that belongs to them, and they go down alive in a sheol, then you shall know that these men have actually despised the Lord. And as soon as he had finished speaking all these words, the ground under them split them apart, split apart. And the earth opened up its mouth and swallowed them with their households and all the people who belonged to Korah and all their goods. So they and all that belonged to them went down alive into Sheol, and the earth closed over them, and they perished from the midst of the assembly. And all Israel who were around them fled at their cry, for they said, Lest the earth swallow us up. And the fire came out from the Lord and consumed the 250 men offering the incense. Go to 41 now. But on the next day, all the congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and against Aaron. People don't learn lessons. Why are we so bad at learning things in the moment in history? Saying, you have killed the people of the Lord. 42. And when the congregation had assembled itself against Moses and against Aaron... They turned toward the tent of meeting, and behold, the cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord appeared. And Moses and Aaron came to the front of the tent of meeting. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Get away from the midst of this congregation, that I may consume them in a moment. And they fell on their faces. And Moses said to Aaron, Take your censer and put fire on it from off the altar, and lay incense on it, and carry it quickly Listen to Moses' heart for the care of the people. Kor didn't respond this way. This is deep humility and care from Moses, a true shepherd. Carry it quickly to the congregation and make atonement for them. For the wrath has gone out from the Lord. The plague has begun. So Aaron took it as Moses said, and he ran into the midst of the assembly. And behold, the plague had already begun among the people. And he put... On the incense, and he made atonement for the people, and he stood between the dead and the living, and the plague was stopped. Now, those who died in the plague were 14,000, 
700 beside those who died in the affair of Korah. 14,950 people. And Aaron returned to Moses at the entrance of the tent of meeting when the plague was stopped. I have six more pages, and so we're not going to finish today. But I want to wind it down this way. Here's the takeaways. Here's the lesson. Here's the warning. Do not listen to any new leader in 2023 or in 2025 who create new ways to follow God that are not connected to Scripture. It's called the way of Cain. Reject it. Are you with, are you with me? I hope you are because it's everywhere out there. It is everywhere out there being taught. Secondly, do not spend one ounce of time on Christian television listening to ministers whom it is clear they are there for financial gain. Don't listen to them. Don't buy their books. Don't. That's called abandoning yourself to the way of Balaam. Do not do it. Thirdly, be very careful about following leaders who gather other people to attack godly leaders. Hey, I, I've messed up in the f- almost 15 years that I've been your pastor, and I will continue, hopefully, fewer and fewer in the days ahead to make some decisions. And, and what I hope you would do as I would do with you is provide some grace in some of that that's not blatant immorality kind of things. You want to destroy this body? Gather a group of people and come against godly people within the body and that will just destroy things. God had set up Moses. By the way, this is not a warning to not ever say anything behind my back. Um, I know things are said. Look, I've been in this a long time. I know things are said around my back. Uh, I know things are, people talk about me on the drive home. Can you believe he said that? I I know all that. I got all that. I got it. Um, I got all that. Um, So this is is not one of those things where you can't ever say anything about the pastor. that's That's not what the lesson is here. The lesson here is, is this. When God has anointed somebody like Moses to be in charge of things, you better watch out to gather a group of other selfish people and to attack them. And that, that's the point that's there. Lastly, all three had the same issue. They rejected the authority of God's word. So the flip side of that is, so what do we do? We submit ourselves to the authority of God's word. 
That's, that's just the deal. And just like God told Cain, it's going to go well with you, Cain, because sin is crouching out the door, but if you will do well, it will go well for you. So that's the counsel from one verse in Jude this morning, what we need to be aware of, what we need to watch out for. We must submit ourselves to the authority of God's Word. One last illustration. So I was asked by someone not not too long ago if I knew about a certain speaker person and I didn't know anything about the speaker person. So they said, could you, could you tell me something about them, just your observation? And so I went online and I began to watch some of the talks and I hope that you demand this. You do demand this, but I hope you never stop demanding this of me. So I watched multiple sermons of this this person who has a large ministry come out on the stage over and over again and not have a Bible with them. You know how bad it is for a pastor to stand before a group of people and not have the sacred text with them? To just flash it up on a screen a verse or two so I went to the person and said look the content of everything was biblical but this is my observation if the pastor doesn't value having the text with him on the platform then there's no way the people are going to so I, I said I've never been to that place I don't know what it's like but I can just bet you that nobody else has a copy of the scripture in there because the pastor doesn't hold it as valuable enough to have it with him. We are in a war today for the truth. And the only way to contend for the gospel is to know the truth of the word. And if you reject it, you will walk in the way of Cain. You will abandon yourself in the way of Balaam for earthly gain. Or you will be swallowed up by rebelling against biblical teaching of godly people who pour their life into others by trying to replace godly leaders with selfish leaders who aren't godly. And that's why the scripture must be our pathway. Let's pray.